Dr. Tamir Sarek, editor of the Palestine-Israel Review and liberal arts professor of Middle East history at Penn State University, and Dr. Joel Bainan, professor of history and professor of Middle East history emeritus at Stanford University, are both joining me in this hour to help us literally get a better understanding, and even if it's a basic understanding of this crisis, so much news coming at us so quickly, hard to know what's true, hard to know what's rhetoric, and hard to know what we should just dismiss as plain old disinformation. So thanks to both of you for joining me in this hour. Uh, So many questions uh, viewers have, listeners have about this crisis. I want to start with you, Dr. Bainan. Can you just give us kind of the, the history of this conflict between the Israelis and the Palestinians. In 10 seconds? Uh, (laughs) Give it to us like you were teaching a fifth grade class. Thanks for having me. Uh, So uh, it is actually very commonly said that it's a thousand year old conflict goes back to biblical times. That's not true at all. Conflict began in the 1880s when European Jewish settlers came to Palestine, which was then part of the province of Syria of the Ottoman Empire. And uh, very soon after the first European Jewish settlers arrived, um, clashes began between them and the indigenous Palestinian Arab population, which was the vast majority of the population of the territory, and which remained the majority of the population of the territory, Uh, Until 1948, uh, the previous year in 1947, the United Nations decided to partition uh, the country into an Arab state and a Jewish state. At the time, there was an Arab majority of uh, two thirds and a Jewish minority of one third. But the UN plan gave the Jews 56 percent of the territory. Uh, There was a civil war between the Arab inhabitants of Palestine and the Jewish inhabitants of Palestine. Uh, The Jewish militias were stronger and better organized and won. And then as soon as the state of Israel was declared and the British colonial authorities left, uh, several Arab states invaded and then Israel defeated them as well. So Israel ended up occupying 78% of the territory that had been the British mandate of Palestine. And in the process, 750,000 Palestinian refugees were either uh, forcibly expelled or fled from the country. Um, That's the origin in many respects of the situation in the Gaza Strip. Uh, Before 1948, uh, something like 80,000 people lived in the Gaza District and they were joined uh, during and after the 1948 war by about 190,000 refugees. So from day one, the Gaza Strip, which between 1948 and 1967 was controlled by Egypt, was an economic catastrophe, economically unviable, uh, overcrowded, and it became uh, even worse as time passed and uh, the population grew. Israel uh, occupied the Gaza Strip, the West Bank, East Jerusalem, also the Syrian territory of Golan Heights and the Egyptian territory of Sinai Peninsula in the 1967 war, uh, in the course of which it's roundly defeated Egypt, Syria, and Jordan. Uh, And Israel has 
maintain its control over uh, most of those territories. The Sinai Peninsula was returned to Egypt in a 1979 uh, peace treaty, but the rest of those territories, Egypt, remain, uh, Israel retains control of. Uh, there was something of a diplomatic process in the 1990s. Uh, Israel recognized the Palestine Liberation Organization as uh, an interlocutor. The Palestine Liberation Organization recognized the state of Israel. So there was no parity there. Many people thought that the Oslo Accords of 1993, uh, which initiated that diplomatic process, uh, were supposed to end up with the establishment of a Palestinian state uh, and self-determination for the Palestinian people. But those words actually don't appear in the Oslo Accords and no Israeli government ever actually agreed to those things. So uh, the negotiations blew up in 2000. Uh, you asked in your intro why no Palestinian state was established. That's why, because uh, the negotiations were not successfully concluded. Um, and uh, Palestinians launched an uprising in 2000, which Israel suppressed with extreme violence and brutality. And Palestinians also uh, launched uh, many uh, suicide bombing attacks on Israel, some of them quite horrific. Um, and since then, uh, there has been very little diplomatic activity. There was some in 2007. And again in 2014, uh, but uh, no, nothing that uh, seriously looked like it could lead to a resolution of this conflict. So let me ask you this, Doctor uh, Dr. Bain. So, is the uh, when we think about proportionality, does Israel still control that that 76 percent of the territory? Israel controls all of the territory in one form or another between the Jordan River and the sea. Uh, there is the state of Israel within its internationally recognized borders, although Israel has never actually said what its borders are. That's 78% of the territory between the Jordan River and the sea. There is the West Bank, where, where a very complicated regime was installed as a result of the negotiations uh, related to the Oslo Accords. The West Bank is divided into three zones, Area A, which the Palestinian Authority more or less controls uh, the uh, internal affairs of, Area B, where control is divided between Israel and the Palestinians, and Area C, which is the lion's share of the territory, a little bit more than 60%, where Israel uh, controls everything and all of the Israeli settlers live. So there are about a half a million Israeli settlers in the West Bank and another 200,000 plus in East uh, Jerusalem. Israel annexed Jerusalem uh, de facto in June of 1967, de jure in 1980. And even though Israel pulled its armed forces out of the Gaza Strip, it also occupies the Gaza Strip legally because it controls everything. It controls entry and exit. It controls the water access. It controls the electricity. It controls the electromagnetic field. It controls the population registry. Uh, so the Gaza Strip has inside it no Israeli troops, 
but it is totally under surveillance and control by Israeli authorities. So there is effectively one state, one sovereign entity between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean, and it's the state of Israel. And half of the residents in that in that in those territories who are Palestinian Arabs have no rights whatsoever. Mm. All right. This, so is usually, this is usually called apartheid. <laughs> okay. And, and it is. It's, it's often referred to that as uh, the largest open air prison in the world. And we hear the word apartheid used pretty often. Uh, Dr. Sarek, given that history that Dr. Bainan just gave us, why the attack by Hamas 10 days ago? Because obviously what Dr. Bainan just described is this pretty... Uh, the, the, the conditions obviously have been there for much longer in terms of the oppression of the Palestinian people. What, what was the catalyst for this attack, though, 10 days ago? Uh, well, first, good evening, uh, and thank you for having me. Uh, the uh, particular timing is the choice of Hamas. Uh, what I can say is that uh, since Israel imposed the blockade on the Gaza Strip, uh, in uh, 2007-8. Um, and this is a very severe blockade. Like Israel really uh, prevents the movement uh, of people out and uh, and from uh, the Gaza Strip, uh, severe restrictions on, on basic supplies. It has significant effect on the well-being, the health um, of uh, in the economy, obviously, of the population. Um, so since then, there were several attempts uh, by Hamas to reach to a certain long-term truce. Um, some negotiations uh, took place, uh, the last of them even in, in as late as uh, 2018, when Hamas was ready for a certain uh, temporary arrangement uh, of uh, ceasefire in exchange of releasing prisoners, building an airport, um, and um, removing the blockade, Israel refused. So I think we Hamas came to a point where um, they felt that they have nothing to lose by breaking um, all the rules. And I don't know exactly when uh, the leadership arrived to this conclusion, but certainly since 2008 and between 2018, sorry, and uh, uh, 2022, this is when it happened because uh, we know now that this um, attack was prepared for many months, probably already started in 2022. And uh, it makes sense that Hamas uh, was looking for the right timing where Israel would be more the most vulnerable. Hmm. And, and so help us uh, understand, Professor Bainan, Hamas, which has been described, you know, by this as, as you know, one of the, the most dangerous uh, terrorist groups in the world, they were in control from a government standpoint of the Gaza Strip? Since yeah. 2006, have they been in control of the government? Yes. Um, Hamas is not one of the most dangerous terrorist groups in the world. The only entity that they have ever attacked is Israel. Uh, they've never attacked anybody else. So all the efforts to try to liken them to uh, the ISIS uh, or Al-Qaeda uh, that's nonsense. There's a conflict between the Palestinian people and Israel and Hamas, um, whatever we might think of them, and I am certainly not a big fan of them, um, they are the leading military antagonist of the state of Israel. 
the way that they came into power in the Gaza Strip is that in 2006, there was uh, a democratic election. All international observers agreed it was a fear, free and fair election for the Palestinian Legislative Council that was established pursuant to the 1993 Oslo Accords. Hamas won a plurality of 45% of the popular vote, which gave them a majority of the legislative seats. So in any democratic regime, they should have been allowed to form the government. And as soon as it was announced that that's what was going to happen, Israel, the United States, and the European Union broke relations with Hamas and said, we're not recognizing this because Hamas was not part of the negotiations that led to the Oslo Declaration of Principles. And Hamas does not support the Oslo Declaration of Principles and the diplomatic process that uh, pursued from it. Why did they not support the Oslo Declaration of Principles? Because this election took place in 2006. The Oslo Declaration of Principles within five years, that's to say by 1998, should have resulted in a resolution of the conflict, which at least the Palestinians thought was going to be a Palestinian state alongside Israel. So from their point of view, Oslo failed. Why should they then support it if it failed? Uh, number two, uh, the their main opponent, Fatah, the leading party in the Palestine Liberation Organization, uh, installed an undemocratic authoritarian regime of great corruption in the Palestinian Authority. And many Palestinian people who were not particularly Hamas supporters were disgusted with them and therefore voted for Hamas. So Hamas had uh, a fair degree of popular support. When well, let me they stop, I want to stop you for a second, Professor Bainey, because in watching all these news reports, I, I've heard several experts say that Hamas is not a group as you've defined them, like a noun, like a group of people, but an ideology, and that you know Israel's uh, commitment to annihilating Hamas won't work because uh, you can't destroy an ideology, and if you destroy the the living human beings that you know, uh, I guess Israel has identified as representing Hamas, that's not going to kill. Uh, this ideology that is committed to the annihilation of the Jewish people. I heard one of the Jewish uh, representatives of the prime minister today said this is a matter of life or death for Jewish people because Hamas has made it its you know lifelong mission to annihilate Jewish people living in Israel. When we come forward, I want to get your response to that. Uh, you know, is Hamas an ideology or is it a group of people the way that you? Uh, defined it. And since the two-state solution didn't come as a result of, of the uh, negotiations that happened in the 90s, uh, is that likely to happen as a result of this conflict that we're witnessing in 2023? Stay with us. KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Ariva Martin in real time on KBLA Talk 1580. We are back and this is hour two of Ariva Martin in real time. And we are tackling uh, the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And this is very complex uh, geopolitical uh, information. And 
we're not going to cover it all in, in one hour. It can't be covered in one hour, but we just, I felt compelled to bring on experts because there's so much information that's being disseminated by government officials, by, you know, so-called experts and pundits on cable news and uh, on online sites. And it's really hard to know what's truth and what's propaganda. So we're going to, you know, really just kind of brush the surface in this broadcast, but we're going to have these experts back because there's so many questions that I have. And I think I've only asked like three and I have a hundred. Uh, so don't get frustrated if you're like, oh, this is going really quickly. And I still don't know everything I want to know about this conflict. Don't, yeah, you can't. Uh, this is stuff that's taught in classes, you know, for years. And both of these uh, professors have been, you know, this has been their life's work throughout their career. So we're going to get as much as we can in in the next 30 minutes and we're going to have them back. Uh, but I'm so grateful to have them and really to be able to just pick their brains about this very complex topic. So, Dr. Sarek, before we went to break, I was asking about, again, something I heard someone on television say, which was that Hamas is not a group of people, but rather it's an ideology. And if the Israelis are successful in, you know, rooting out, finding and literally lining up on a wall and killing everyone that is, quote unquote, associated with Hamas and related to this terrorist attack, that it wouldn't change anything because, you know, there's a new generation waiting in the wing to carry on this ideology. Is that true or is that false? Well, Israel in the past uh, has already tried to uh, destroy the um, uh, entire infrastructure of a Palestinian organization. It was in 19, when Israel invaded Lebanon in 1982 with the goal of uh, uprooting the PLO. Israel did it successfully and created a new enemy called Hezbollah, who is a uh, hundred times stronger than the PLO has ever been. Uh, and because the occupation of Israel in Lebanon uh, created such hostility, tower and hate, toward Israel, uh, that Israel has to deal until today with the consequences of the, that decision. So Israel can enter with a huge price in lives of Palestinians, of, of Israeli soldiers, and, and maybe uh, destroy and catch and, and uh, uh, kill all the uh, leaders of Hamas. Now, Hamas is not only the leader. Hamas is the institution in the Gaza Strip every, at every level. We love to destroy the, the entire uh, political infrastructure in, in Gaza Street. It's not only several leaders. And then what? What is the horizon for after that? So um, the we talk about ideology, but what motivates people is not ideology. Uh, ideology is the, the way they justify what they're doing. Okay. So but so what Israel Israel cannot uh, eradicate the hostility toward Israel. And um, Israel cannot eradicate the aspiration of Palestinians for freedom, for dignity, the aspiration of the refugees to return. This is thing Israel cannot eradicate, not by military force. There are uh, maybe political ways to do it. But what I mean that destroying Hamas, whether it destroys ideology or not, this is less important. What is important is what are you doing with the motivations of the Palestinians to fight? Right. This is what we have to think about. So, Professor Bainan, as I've watched these Israeli representatives on television, they say they have no choice but to try to root out Hamas. And thank you, Dr. Sarek, for saying it's not just a group of individuals. It's the whole government, this institution. Uh, and when asked about a two-state solution, 
these Jewish or Israeli representatives say, we can't live with Palestinians and Hamas because our safety would be compromised. So that's the question. And I know it's a big question. It's not a simple answer, but if you could you know, make it as simple as you can, how come we can't get to a two-state solution? The simple answer for why we can't get to a two-state solution is because there's never been an Israeli government that supported it. Now, most of the media spin in the West will go the other way. Uh, well, we didn't have a partner for peace and they're terrorists and so forth and so on. But if you go and examine the historical record carefully, there was never an Israeli government that voted to support a two-state solution. Now, since 2000... Now let me, but let me ask you that. Okay, very simple answer. Got that. Israelis have lost lives. 1,300-plus people killed, hostages taken. Why wouldn't the Israelis want peace? Why wouldn't they want a two-state solution where they would have their state and live, you know, presumably in some peace, and the Palestinians would live in peace? So everybody wants peace, right? No one will tell you, no, I don't want peace. I, I want to live my life in a state of war. Uh, although actually, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, when was asked in a press conference, so are we always going to have to live on our swords? He said yes. Mm -hmm. uh, so let's say everybody wants peace. The only question is on what terms? Mm -hmm. At this point in the history of the conflict, most Israeli Jews cannot imagine a healthy situation in which they do not dominate absolutely the Palestinians. Mm -hmm. There is, they, they find it very difficult to tolerate that there will be any substantial zone of autonomy for Palestinians to take actions that they may not approve of. I'm not talking here about military uh, action. I mean, if there were a peace, there that would not be the, the point. But I mean political, diplomatic, economic decisions. So, uh, Okay, let me let me ask this. I gotta stop you. And I, I'm thinking about America. So is the thought, the the you know the reprehensible thought of Palestinians having autonomy, is it rooted in like what we see in the U.S. around racism, like where you know whites in the South coming out of slavery could not imagine black people with rights living next to them, you know, going to schools with them. Is it rooted in, in that kind of you know, racial animus, Dr. Sarek, that Israelis have towards Palestinians, or is it something else? I think there are some similarities. There are some similarities in um, uh, in sentiments of uh, superiority, but there is something in the um, uh, colonial history of Israel uh, which is uh, different because um, Israel um, is... It was built by through the Zionist ideology that is aspiring for a con, um, constant process of Judaization. So uh, Israel is not only dominating Palestinians, but there is an, a momentum of uh, gaining more and more territories and more and more control to Judaize the space, to Judaize geography, to Judaize demography, and this continuous process of uh, dispossession is somewhat similar from what was happening in um, in the south. 
And uh, I think this is also what uh, brings more um, resistance uh, and continuous resistance from the Palestinians because they have to face all the time this process of uh, dispossession. Yeah, when we come forward, I want to talk about how does this crisis end, given the, the historical nature and given some of these, uh, you know, entrenched issues uh, that's fueling this crisis, how do we get to any resolution? And what about this humanitarian crisis and the hostages? You know, is there any hope that the hostages are alive? And is there any pathway for these hostages to be freed? And then I want to talk about Joe Biden's visit. Did that help or hurt? Uh, lots of questions when we come forward. KBLA Talk 1580. Okay, we are going to try to get a couple more questions in on this very complex topic of the uh, Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I, I know we just did not have a time, enough time. That hour went so quickly. I have so many more questions, but let's try to get to this issue. Uh, Dr. Bainan, I heard again a, a representative from the Israeli government say, the hostages, uh, the question was, you know, Hamas said if you would, if if they would stop firing on, if the Israelis would stop firing on Hamas, they would consider releasing the hostages. This representative from Israeli said, no, they need to release the hostages first, and then we'll consider stop firing, opening up a corridor, et cetera. So like, it, are the hostages going to be released given that each side has taken a position and there doesn't seem to be much middle ground? Well, I don't know if the hostages would, are going to be released. I'd very much like to know the answer to that question. Um, but the response of the Israeli official who you just quoted makes no sense. If Israel is bombing, let's say they open up the a tunnel or prison or whatever they have where they're holding the hostage. Where are they going to go? Into a zone where bombs are randomly falling and they will be killed by the bombs? I mean, that makes no sense. There has to be a ceasefire in order for there to be a release of hostages. There are people uh, I know who are working behind the scenes, uh, both governments, Qatar, as you mentioned in your introduction, uh, also individuals whose names I won't mention, although I do know them, who are working on some kind of prisoner exchange. The Israeli hostages for the, I think, 50-ish Palestinian women held in Israeli jails and a certain number of minors and elderly Palestinians in Israeli jails. Will that actually happen? I have no idea. Wow. Okay. So one of the things Dr. Sarek that Biden said when he went to Israel was, you know, we stand with you, but basically in coded language, he was telling, uh, you know, Netanyahu, take the temperature down. Don't act on emotion. You need to have a plan here. Uh, you know, look what happened in, you know, in the U.S. after the 9-11 attack. But as both of you have said, you know, the, the Jewish people are out for blood. You know, they want to annihilate Hamas and doesn't appear that they're really thinking past that in terms of any kind of plan. So what do you see as a pathway forward to end this crisis? Pathway forward. What do you think would happen or what I would like to see happening? Well, what do you think is likely to happen realistically? Well, because I... I think that um, the United States is interested in stability. And I think they're checking the temperature. 
they will allow Israel to continue the attack as long as they see stability in the region. They don't, as long as they don't have concern that other powers will be uh, joining in, as long as uh, the regimes in Egypt and in Jordan and other Middle Eastern countries are, sta are stable. So I, I don't think the United States will hold Israel as long as they won't see this development uh, that I'm, uh, I just uh, described now. So um, I, I'm not 100% sure that uh, what I described will happen, that Biden will return and then they will attack. They will attack if the United States won't be concerned enough. In other words, I think uh, things are 100% in the hand of the United States. It, it became very clear now that, the, that Israel is under the wings of the United States and Israel has to follow the instructions from Washington. So I, um, my prediction that is the war will continue until the point where the United States will say stop. We say stop. Mm. You know, Professor Bennett, Netanyahu supported Donald Trump in the 2016 election. And I know we're not supporting him as a person. We're supporting, you know, our ally in the Middle East. But how does his leadership and his extremist leadership, how is this complicating things for a Democratic president like Joe Biden? It complicates it enormously on a number of uh, fronts. Um, we shouldn't forget that uh, as we speak, Benjamin Netanyahu is uh, in court on three different charges of corruption and bribery. Uh, in order to try to evade the ultimate verdict of the court and, and uh, uh, evade uh, being held to account for those things if he were to be proven guilty. Uh, he has brought a people into his government who openly declare themselves to be fascists and homophobes. Um, so these people, they're, they are messianists. They believe that if Israel annexes all of the West Bank, then the Messiah will come for the first time for the Jews, not for the second time as for Christians. Uh, and this is their deep religious belief. And uh, there's no arguing with them about it. Um, so Netanyahu is entirely reliant on them uh, to stay in power which if he doesn't do, he might go to jail. So here, I, I think I might disagree with Tamir that logically at the level of big power politics and international relations, yes, Israel should be totally uh, subordinate to the United States. But uh, because of Netanyahu's personal situation and because of the way far out right-wing messianist ideology of a certain component of his coalition on which he is dependent, um, Netanyahu may very well decide to tell President Biden, uh, thanks, but no thanks, this is what we're going to do. Now, we're in the realm of some speculation here, so I, I wouldn't say, no, this is absolutely what's going to happen, and we don't know what's going to happen. Well, okay, so th this is a democratic country. When do they have elections like the U.S. every four years for president? When is they that do indeed? They do indeed, and the current government holds sixty-four out of the one hundred and twenty seats of the Israeli Parliament, the Knesset. So they have a majority. Mm. But the Democrats—he's not up for re-election until when? Three more years. Three more years. So let's talk about the humanitarian crisis in the last couple of minutes that we have. Uh, how much can the U.S.? I mean, we're not used to seeing mangled babies and, you know, beheaded people or people drinking out of toilets, Dr. Sarek. So this humanitarian crisis is real. 
Uh, and again, watching some of these representatives, they aren't taking a lot of uh, responsibility for it. They're blaming it on Hamas and saying that this is Hamas's plan. And they knew when they invaded Israel that their people would be collateral damage. So the way that we stop killing the Palestinians is for Hamas to, you know, again, basically wave the white flag. How long can this go on before the international community, including U.S., you know, say enough is enough? Are they going to stand with Israel if literally if we're watching babies starve and drink toilet water? Well, uh, the U.S. foreign policy has never been motivated by uh, human rights and humanitarian reasons. So uh, the United States, as I uh, mentioned earlier, they will intervene only when it will uh, threaten the uh, interest of the uh, U- uh, of the United States. And the the key issue here for stopping it probably are the the, the popular masses in Egypt or in Jordan. If they will start to uh, go out to the street, if they will start to make demonstrations that would put these regimes in danger, maybe then the United States will stop. I uh, I do not, unfortunately, I do not see anything coming out of the uh, U.S. administration that will stop it without that. So, um, Oh, so you're saying it's not going to be the humanitarian crisis. It's going to be the threat that this war spreads to other countries that would cause the U.S. to take a more hardline approach. Absolutely. I have no doubt about that. So, Dr. Bainan, anyone that says that the Palestinians don't deserve to be slaughtered, that Israel needs to temper its response, can be quickly labeled anti-Semitic in this country, which is why we're seeing all of these issues flare up on college campuses, et cetera. Help us understand that, because a lot of people don't think that just by acknowledging that Palestinian kids shouldn't be killed makes them anti-Semitic, or they're not anti-Semitic. They just don't want kids killed, period. Well, I I would agree that that's not anti-Semitic. What we've had in the United States, especially since the terrorist attacks of 9-11, is a broad dehumanization of Muslims, of Arabs, and of Palestinians. Uh, And uh, we are used to talking about Palestinians as if uh, they are not real human beings like us and like the uh, democratic Israelis, who, by the way, aren't all that democratic. Uh, and so when you repeat over and over again that these people are not like us and they uh, don't deserve the same rights that we uh, deserve, uh, when you see them die, uh, even very graphically as we are on TV and social media, people don't feel it in the same way. Mm. Yeah, th- that is so True. Uh, lastly, Dr. Sorry, what advice do you have for us who are just trying to make sense of this? You know, how should we be consuming the news? How do we know, again, what's fact versus fiction versus just propaganda? Well, there are some good uh, sources of news. I would recommend, for example, to listen to Democracy Now!, uh, where you get really uh, perspectives of, of uh, people who are honest and uh, do not try to uh, manipulate and very informative. Uh, you have to diverse your sources of information. And uh, I, th- there is no perfect source of information. Everyone has their agenda, okay? Uh, but um, if it is uh, diverse and, and uh, reliable, um, uh, it, it, you cannot consume it only from one source. And I think this pro- this uh, uh, program is also a reliable place to listen to. <laughs> 
No, it is because I have you and I have Dr. Bain. And so it's a very reliable and trusted source of news. And that's why I want to have you two experts on because people are so confused by what they are hearing and what they are seeing. And you've been very, very helpful. I mean, just even the perspective that this is not going to be driven by the humanitarian crisis unfolding is really going to be driven by the spread or the potential spread of this war and, you know, harm to U.S. interest in the Middle East, which you know, it all comes down to politics and politics comes down to power and money, which is, uh, you know, we, we know that all too well in the U.S. Thank you so much, both. I am so much smarter and I'm sure my listeners and viewers are as well because of the information you imparted today. I'm going to have to have you back because there's so many more questions I have about this conflict is very, very complex and very nuanced. And I just want folks to feel comfortable being able to at least converse about it because it's going to be everything that's talked about over the next couple of weeks and months. Again, thank you so much for your time. Uh, next voice that you hear will be Robin Ayers and the Rye Report right here on KBLA Talk 1580. Don't touch that dial.